0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canadians head to the polls today to cast their ballots in the first and hopefully last pandemic election. How's the horse race making up? Well, we'll talk about that. People pretty upset with uh, Mayor Eisenberger's comments on homeless encampments from Friday's Mayor's Town Hall on CHML. Laura Babcock, the president of Power Group, will join us to discuss that. And a report released by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention finds that America's Pfizer shot is significantly less effective at preventing severe cases of disease over the long term. Rather troubling news? Well, we'll give you all the details. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, get the lay of the land as to what's been happening here the last little while. As we know, since the writ came down, there's been a lot of controversy, a number of key issues, and uh, a little bit of backbiting, as you might expect. Uh, Canada's first ever pandemic election culminates today from coast to coast as we go to the polls to choose 338 members of Parliament to sit in the House of Commons. Steve Henniger has some details. Elections candidates says almost 6.8 million people voted early. However, a majority of Canada's more than 30 million eligible voters will mark their ballots today. Polling stations are open for 12 hours, though opening times vary by region, starting as early as 7 a.m. Pacific Time in B.C. and as late as 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time in Ontario and most of Quebec. Most riding winners will be known by late tonight, but Elections Canada warns it could take up to four days to finish counting all the special ballots, which means some close races may not have official winners for several days. Steve Henninger, the Canadian Press. So uh, what's the lay of the land and uh, and just, well, who, if anybody, has... uh, advantage as uh, we head to the polls later on today. Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Oksana Kiszczek. Oksana is a consultant at Abacus Data. Oksana, always a pleasure. Uh, thanks for joining us on this very, very important day.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here, especially on today.
0: I know this is a, a real excitement in the air. I mean, I just I, I I love the fact that we have a democracy. I love the fact that we have an ability to vote, uh, and the backbiting is over. I mean, you know, did we need this election? Would we not well. That's the people make up their minds. But whatever the coast, this is the day that we have to actually mark the ballot and, and decide uh, the fate of the of this country and who's going to be governing us and who's going to be making the decisions. But as uh, as you guys have done uh, with your research uh, from Abacus Data. Uh, this is, well, I guess, as they say in the horse racing business, this one's too close to call. This is looks like it's going to be a photo finish here, Oksana.
1: Yeah, I think especially in the popular vote, we are, um, at least from our numbers from yesterday, we're at a statistical tie between the Conservatives and the Liberals. So it is definitely a close election, that's for sure.
0: And that hasn't really changed in the last uh, three to four weeks, has it?
1: Yeah, no, it's been it's been a tight race um pretty much this whole time I think um, they've kind of been in our numbers tussling between the liberals and the conservatives a little bit um but but sticking pretty close together in, in terms of who's going to win the popular vote
0: and it's unusual i I thought anyway since uh, you know you, you try to compare this to past elections, uh, invariably through the course of a campaign there will be, things that occur something that's said maybe something that's not said uh revelations that, that maybe we didn't fully know or were aware of the implications they could really sway uh, those numbers but that that hasn't really happened i mean there have been some blips on the road i guess for all the three main party leaders anyway but it hasn't really seemed to change the, the the mindset of most canadian voters i think
1: yeah i mean i think there's there's yeah definitely been some issues i mean we've talked about quite a few over the past couple of weeks Um, But I think I've sort of said this before, and that there isn't necessarily one particular issue that's the ballot box question, um, in my mind, from this election, perhaps, Um, whether there should have been an election or not might even be one of them. And so I think, um, with with that in mind, it's kind of hard for one party to completely dominate the whole time. And I think that's why we've seen sort of a bit of a back and forth. Um, We've also seen sort of a declining interest in the campaign, at least from our numbers, um, following the federal election since the start of the campaign. So I think um, there's a couple of factors that make it a sort of a little less um, uh, an election that people are going to kind of um, be be drawn to, particularly. Um, not, not to say people won't go out and vote, but I think there's a, not really a, a clear narrative that sort of carried um, through the campaign, especially as it pertains to a top issue
0: well and you guys have shown that with the the, the data that you've accumulated over the last number of weeks and i certainly have heard it from our our listeners uh in the last little while i mean if you take any 10 voters Exxon, it seems that you're probably going to get seven eight maybe nine different reasons why they're voting the way that they're voting you're right there there is no laser focus on one particular issue uh you know did we need an election that might be somebody's mind uh covid is going to be a a factor in this uh you know anti-vaxxers are going to be a factor in this i mean there's so much going on here right now uh and, and you're right i mean whatever the motivation is we want people to go to the polls and vote today but it's going to be awfully difficult uh to try to determine exactly why they're voting the way they are until we start counting the the ballots i guess tonight
1: yeah yeah i think there's lots of different ways and i think it also depends regionally too it depends on on how closely people are following there's a bunch of different ways of looking at the data that would say uh, a certain party would win i mean if we're looking at sorry looking at attention paid to the campaign by by who people are voting for in our numbers the conservatives are paying more attention if you look at people who have already cast their ballot, the conservatives have a slight lead. But then if you look at who people want to win, Trudeau sort of edges out O'Toole. Um, When we look at preferred kind of government, um, more people want a liberal government than conservatives. So there's a whole bunch of different ways besides kind of who you would vote for um, that are part of that consideration. And that isn't even touching on top issues.
0: No, it isn't. But uh, and it comes down to, I guess, to as you mentioned, the leaders' popularity. And, and I know, and you, you read some of the comments from some of the pundits, especially in the last three or four days. Uh, it seems to be almost like a glass is half full approach to this. You know, uh, did, you know, did Trudeau convince Canadians that the election was necessary? They said, well, probably not to the extent that he should have. Uh, did Erin O'Toole grab, uh, you know, capture people's imaginations to say that he's the alternative choice? The numbers indicate yeah. not really. I mean, there's 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 a lot left wanting in this from from what I guess the lofty goals that they all had at the beginning and just until where we are today
1: yeah yeah i think there's sort of exactly glass hustle is is kind of how how people look at it and how the numbers are shaking out um, we all ask people um, kind of the impact of Justin Trudeau calling the election maybe when he didn't have to and about half of what we're calling LPC CPC switchers um, say it has no impact the other half say it does the same is the case for people who are kind of switching between the liberals and the NDP so I think um, yeah, definitely sort of a, a glass full outlook but then also a bit of the possibility for things to flip-flop because of all those sort of uncertainties and, and extra variables that are in play right now.
0: As, as you've talk from from, uh, from coast to coast here with people about uh, where they're headed. And, and you know, you, you like to think that they, probably in the last seven or eight days they probably, you know, solidified exactly which way they want to go. What about the, the extraneous factors in this? And and you're right, it does vary from region to region. Uh, and there's a lot of questions here, aren't there, you know, How much of an influence is uh, Jason Kenney going to have in this election in the province of Alberta? He's not a very popular premier there right now. Uh, does that translate into people saying, well, we're going to punish the conservatives because we don't like Jason Kennedy? Can We've seen that happen in past elections, uh, but there's really no strong indicators to just how those things are going to roll out and how much of an impact it's going to have on voters.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, like in terms of um, Aaron O'Toole, specifically in his impressions in Alberta, he still um, kind of carries his highest positives in that province. So I think perhaps sort of the events of last week might have uh, had people question things a little bit. Um, in terms of whether or not they want to vote for him. But kind of the alternative is sort of that PPC vote, which a lot of people are really interested in following. And while they may gain maybe 5 to 6% of the popular vote, I'm not sure that that'll translate to seat count, um, which is sort of a whole other conversation um, besides popular vote and, and how things are actually going to turn out in the 338 seats.
0: Well, I know, and it hasn't been a topic of conversation to any great extent, but that's that's the minutia of the parliamentary system, isn't it? Uh, as you mentioned, Andrew Shear won the popular vote. The Conservatives won the popular vote in the last election, uh, but it didn't translate it into enough seats to actually be able to form government. And uh, we don't know uh, just where that's going to go, but this is really where the regional vote comes in, doesn't it? Uh, and it starts, as we always have, of course, you know, we go from east to west as, as polls close and we get that. And I, I get the feeling that, that what we're going to see in the maritime provinces out on the East Coast is, is going to be, have a major impact on, on who does what here. I mean, that the Liberals usually do pretty well there. I know that uh, the Conservatives have spent a lot of time out in uh, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, especially over the last little while, uh, trying to, to, to make some inroads into that. It's, it's going to be awfully interesting to see uh, just where those patterns are going to be. Is it going to follow what traditionally has happened out there, or are we going to see some radical differences?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, in our numbers, we're seeing sort of the Liberals continue to lead in Atlantic Canada, which does sort of drive and collect quite a few seats sort of as we start to see the polls close. And they're also doing fairly well in Ontario as well, um, tied kind of with uh, the bloc in Quebec, which is um, probably expected, um, but has the ability for them to pull some seats there too. And so I think um, when you really start to look at the seat breakdown, those regional sort of splits are really what's more important maybe than the popular vote overall.
0: What about... Quebec and the NDP. I know Jagmeet Singh really would like to recoup some of those losses. I mean, we all know about you know, the, the, the election that actually catapulted the NDP into the official opposition some years ago uh, with mm-hmm. Jack Layden. Uh, they've they've never been able to replicate that, of course. So you can ask Tom will care about that. It probably cost him his job uh, as <laughs> leader of the NDP at that time. Uh, but I, I, are the NDP going to be a factor in this situation? They only have one seat in Quebec right now, so uh, you know I, if they get two, they're doubling that. I mean, that's the math of it. but I mean they 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 have much loftier goals than that. And uh, I, I guess it's it's an important question, not just for the NDP but for the liberals too, because uh, I, I you know if the NDP are going to make inroads as as some observers seem to think, are they going to do it at the expense of the Bloc? or are those going to be potential liberal votes that are going to go too far to the left as far as the Liberals are concerned?
1: Yeah, I think, especially in Quebec, I don't think the NDP is going to pick up as much seats as liberals by any means. We have them at 10% for that province. Um, I think they're more likely to do better in somewhere like B.C., uh, where they're sort of tied with mm-hmm. uh, the Conservatives, maybe 32, 35 percent. Um, but the other thing I think with the NDP is they've generated a lot of attention. I mean, Jagmeet is kind of coming out of this election as, um, in our numbers, the most popular leader. Um, But I'm unsure if that'll sort of translate into someone that you'd want to vote for. Um, just because you think someone is charismatic or you like their personality, Um, I think maybe doesn't translate into who you would vote for. And I think maybe that's the case um, with Jagmeet, is that um, it's maybe young people who aren't old enough to vote. Um, We could kind of get into the conversation of TikTok. um, But then also just uh, um, people that aren't necessarily going to cast their ballot for him in the end, especially in Quebec.
0: I've noticed a, a very slight change in the messaging over the last two days, I guess, especially from, from the three main party leaders. Uh, where Let's face it, when the campaign starts, everybody says, well, I want to be the next prime minister. That's why I'm running. And, uh, yeah, okay, we get that. But I guess pragmatism tends to seep into the message. And I, I got the sense that, that Jagmeet Singh was... Talking along the lines of, look at, uh, you know, I could be the difference maker if it's going to be a minority parliament. I I could have the balance of power, so that's why you should vote for us. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the conservatives and the liberals pointing fingers and say, boy, if you put these people in power, things are only going to get worse. So the the messaging gets a it, it gets becomes a little darker. But at the same time, you're, you're looking at some strategy that's involved here about uh, you know making your vote count, uh, strategic voting, things of that nature.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of, especially with an election this close between uh, the Liberals and the Conservatives, I think they're kind of trying out any sort of strategy. I know um, I think Justin Trudeau was out saying that it, it is close, so so make sure you put your vote where it counts. Um, but I think that's there's a possibility for that. Um, but I've also heard a lot, um, sort of especially among younger voters, about um, sort of voting for the party that you think is sort of best going to lead. And I think that's why we've seen sort of the NDP uh, pick up a little bit in the, in that group. So, um, whether or not that actually, that message maybe translates to people um, and, and makes them think a little bit more strategically about how they're voting, um, I'm not necessarily sure. I mean, we've seen attention even drop, um, attention paid to the election drop over the last couple of days as well. So I'm not sure that people are going to be sort of voting on, on those sorts of things <laughs> in the last day. But um, I mean, it remains to be seen if that messaging will work.
0: Even how we vote's become a story in this election, hasn't it? I mean, there was speculation a couple of weeks ago now about mail-in balloting, and there's uh, some people that were anticipating about 3 million uh, Canadians would, would use mail-in balloting this time around. It was nowhere near that. It was only just over a million. Uh, mm-hmm. So I guess I guess when push comes to shove, we still embrace the old style of doing things, of lining up at the polling station and, and marking our X.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, mail-in in advance. Um, voting do require more planning Um, Mm -hmm. and considering that more people aren't necessarily paying attention to the election. I think um, that kind of voting the traditional way is is probably what a majority of people will end up doing. Um, But I mean, as long as people are voting, if they have the ability to, I think that that's the, the more important part.
0: Well, and if there's one key word here that we can take as we're just wrapping up here, I guess it's going to be patience. Uh, there are going to be lineups. Uh, there's social distancing. You have to wear a mask when you're voting at the polling station. So it mm-hmm. it's, may take a few more minutes than usual to mark your X. And, and the other element, I guess, part B of patience is uh, those mail-in ballots that we just talked about, they don't even begin to count those until tomorrow. So it it's, yeah. could be a while in some of these key races before we actually get a result.
1: Yeah, I think patience all around is, is likely the word of the day. Um, yeah, whether you're out in the polls or or you're counting um, counting ballots tomorrow, I think there will be a couple tight races. And so um, we we might not see all the ridings confirmed today, but um, patience for sure.
0: Well, it's uh, it's been an interesting ride, and uh, we have no idea who's going to be there at the finish line at the end of it, but uh, the, the data and the work that you guys at Abacus have been doing have uh, given us some great insights as to uh, where voters are on this. Uh, enjoy this. I, we'll actually, I guess, uh, start sifting through the tea leaves and try to find out what uh, what happened in the election <laughs> over the days ahead, Oksana. look forward to those yeah. conversations with you as well. Thanks so much for this today. Yeah.
2: sounds
1: good. Thank you.
0: Take care. Oksana Kiszczak, consultant with Abacus Data. Uh, get out and vote. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. An incident of concern occurred on this program actually on Friday. I was not available Friday. Uh, Scott Radley, good friend Scott Radley, of course, was hosting the show. And part of the show was uh, the Mayor's Town Hall, which we do every month, of course, on the program with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. And uh, during that segment of the program this past Friday, uh, Mayor Eisenberger. We made some comments about uh, the tent cities and the, the problem that's going on with homelessness here in the city. Uh, and uh, he said, uh, in part, anyway, the city will continue working with health care partners to get homeless individuals into proper locations rather than pitching tents in public places. And he admitted, apparently, that it is a perplexing, very complex problem. Forty folks in tents in our community isn't, isn't exactly a disaster. Uh, but it is a, an indicator of something that uh, needs our attention and that all parties need to be working towards to get them properly housed. So uh, I, I did not hear the segment, obviously, because it was unavailable, but I did certainly see some of the social media reaction to the mayor's comments, uh, suggested that he was downplaying this on purpose, trying to make this into what he some people thought to be an insignificant problem. Uh, anybody, of course, who's been following the story over the last little while, and it's not unique to Hamilton because it's going on with our London audience as well, understands that this is a major problem right now. The city has been trying to grapple with this. Uh, some would suggest with uh, varying and some would suggest with little to, to no success. I want to bring Laura Babcock into the conversation, uh, who is uh, commenting on this on social media. Laura, of course, is the president of Power Group. Uh, Great to have you on the the show on such an important day on Election Day, Laura. Thanks for hopping on today.
2: My pleasure. Right after this, I'm going to go and vote, and I hope everybody listening does so as well.
0: I, get, I want to get your read on some of the federal stuff too, but what, what what's going on with, with the, this encampment issue? I know that the councilor for downtown, Jason Farr, has been weighing in on this, and the, and, and the mayor has weighed in on this. Uh, a number of advocates who have been in trying to get the city to understand the, the severity of this situation have been talking about this for over a year now. Uh, what's, what's the read, and, and what's your reaction to the way that city council is responding to this?
2: Well, I mean, part of what happened on the weekend was that a quote was extrapolated from that interview where the mayor talked about the number of homeless people who are doing it because of mental health issues and the number who are doing it by choice, and I think walked that back a little bit, apparently, on other media. But it was a tone that came across um, of a lack of empathy. And Hamiltonians have unfortunately seen a uh, lack of empathetic response to the people in the tents. We've seen that by the way that city council has handled it. Uh, we all witnessed as uh, the protest in front of city hall, where we saw the tents in the pouring rain being thrown into garbage uh, compactors last, uh, garbage trucks last, I think it was December. We saw where the mayor would not meet with the housing advocates who had been camping out in front of city hall. He would not take a public meeting with them. Uh, and, and that was enraging to so many people who have been working on on the front lines to try to get our most vulnerable citizens in a pandemic into housing so it's not that the mayor hasn't done anything about it or that city council doesn't recognize that it's an issue it's the the tone that is put forward uh, that almost um may well the idea that people would be homeless by choice i mean who would give up the option of having a stable life in a country like canada with our climate uh people might be in the encampments because it's they see it as their best option with, these, with the uh, shelters being the way that they are. But we have a huge backlog in Hamilton Housing. We've had thousands of people waiting for years. And so the idea that in a city where housing is unaffordable, where we have a huge backlog of affordable housing inventory, where the mayor wouldn't speak with the people outside in the cold trying to get a public meeting on the record with him about the crisis, uh, the thought that anyone is sort of out there in a precarious environment by choice really upset people this weekend, Bill. And we saw, you know, the mayor's response to the attack on the LGBTQ community. We saw the mayor's lack of uh, response to the people who were harassing racialized people in front of City Hall. We have seen this before, but even though it's not surprising, this kind of tone, this defensiveness, It it's disheartening, uh, because I think if you're going to be the mayor, you need to be the mayor of every Hamiltonian, not just the ones who might make the city look good or the ones that might agree with you. But you have to speak for everyone. So, I mean, that was part of it. To your bigger question, how is the city handling it? Not as well as they should be. And it's not rocket science. There was a, a cultural anthropologist and a member of the, I believe it was the Financial Times Board, who was on a show this weekend talking about homelessness. And Hamilton's not alone in this right it's happening in Toronto with encampments it's happening in Los Angeles it's happening around the world mm-hmm. and it and the math behind it it's pretty you know it's pretty simple if your housing costs are as much as a third of your household income there's going to be an increase in homelessness so i just wish that our council bill would stop being so defensive and and in some ways minimizing the plight of the vulnerable and actually understand that this is a global phenomenon we have a high, high housing cost and a lack of inventory, and just work on that, and not make it about you know the choices of the people involved in this crisis.
0: But the, I guess what's bothering me about this is, is I'm hearing mixed messaging from City Council and from City Hall. I should say that because there are some staff people that are involved in this, and, and, and then you're hearing some of the things from the councilors. Uh, Councilor Farr, who represents the downtown area, uh, seems. To be saying, Laura, that uh, this problem is getting worse, not better, with this new policy that uh, the council is is embracing now. Uh, we talked to Chief of Police Frank Bergen about this the other day on the program, uh, and he was trying to outline the protocol as to what's going on. That the you know people will be asked to move on. Uh, will there be arrests? Well, it's hard to get you know, to issue warrants and, and tickets or anything else for people unless you know you have their identity, etc., and an address. So there's there's complications to this, uh, and I don't see the problem getting better. And I think that's what we're all looking for here is Okay, you've developed this new policy now, City of Hamilton. Tell us how it's working and tell us why it's effective. I I don't see very many signs that it is yet.
2: Well, criminalizing uh, people who are in despair is ridiculous, right? It's going to do nothing. How is that possibly going to help anybody get out of this? We are in a pandemic that is raging through Hamilton. We have heart surgeries being cancelled because of so many unvaccinated people cramming up our ERs in this city. Uh, We've got people who are incredibly vulnerable on the street. The last thing that they need is to have cops coming up and jamming up our legal system and the rest of it when we know that the issue is a lack of inventory of affordable housing. And this is not new, but with the pandemic, it's been exacerbated. As housing prices go up, it's being exacerbated. So correct, the problem's not getting better, but when Councillor Farr used the analogy of encampments we're like playing whack-a-mole or something, it doesn't send a signal to people who care deeply and passionately about these Hamiltonians living on the street, that council gets it. It's not that they're a nuisance. It's not that, you know, they, they might drive down investment or housing values. It's that they're humans. And it's a problem that other cities are grappling with better than Hamilton in, in some cases and in some places as badly. But it's not personal to council. It's not that we need to criminalize or, um, you know, be, be snarky or, you know, minimize the plight of these individuals. So, you know, when they say things like, oh, there's only 10 people who are, are on the streets in this town because of mental illness, the rest are by choice. That is beyond ridiculous. If we were still in studio, Bill, I would probably pass 10 people in homelessness just depending on which route I took down the mountain. We have a serious problem. Let's stop being so defensive and start looking at best practice and show some vision and some compassion. That's what we need in the mayor. That's what we need in council. And I think that's why a lot of people can't wait for the next election.
0: There was an insinuation and, and like I say, it's because of some of the mixed messaging, and some of the, the comments that, that seemed to run contradictory from some members of council, from some members of city staff. But there seemed to be an insinuation, Laura, a week or so ago that sucked like it everybody that wants a roof over their head can get one with the exception of three or four people that don't seem to want that and they want to stay where they are i i just having trouble trying to get my head around that that that's actually the case because uh you've talked about you know the, the lack of affordable housing that's one issue uh and we know there's about a five to seven year wait for some of those and that's not going to get changed overnight uh but this is a, a more dramatic and a more immediate problem this is just getting on a list this is finding a spot tonight uh, for you to stay i mean it's going to get colder you know this is the you know first day of autumn coming up and it's you know what's going to the calendar's the same every year it's going to get cold it's going to be snowing and we're going to say what are we going to do with these people this is the time to be acting on this uh and it just seems as if they're going with this six-step process right now which seems in many people's minds to just be kicking the issue down the road again
2: well they're they're pretty uh, expert at that right i mean we've seen it in so many ways on the particular comment about the weather i was uh, asked to be a part of or it was part of a campaign called how's the weather years ago yeah. raising awareness over the fact that the women in hamilton could not find shelter in the weather as it got worse and i've seen over the last couple of weeks tweets from doctors who are on the front lines and from people who are representing uh, or trying to help women living in homelessness, saying that they can't find beds, right? So this idea that, you know, if people just wanted to be in a shelter, they, they'd be fine, right? It's, it's kind of this onus on them. I don't know about you, Bill, but many people are very, very, like, one or two paychecks or one calamity away from their life being dramatically impacted. And what you hope for in a society is that when and if you should hit some really bad luck That there are going to be people who care enough about you to try to find a sustainable solution to your issue, not to have this kind of whack-a-mole, well, there's only 10, well, okay, maybe it's a bit more than that, but they have a choice. It's not a choice to live in despair. And we need our city council to address that, how they see these people on the street, as opposed to, you know, the the next six steps they come up with or the involvement of the police. Because as long as they're looking at the issue through that lens of personal accountability on these individuals that need our help as a collective society, I don't think that they're going to make the kind of moves that are necessary to really get a handle on this issue and to really find those those innovative solutions going forward. I mean, we've got some private partners in the city who are working hard on on affordable housing. We've got some, you know, some councillors who care deeply about it. But how far have we moved the meter on affordable housing and the backlog in this city since the House the Weather campaign or since, you know, years and years ago. This is not new, but the attitudes of council are not new either. And how are we going to have a change for the better if the attitudes remain in and blaming the individuals instead of looking at the high cost of living in our society?
0: Well, uh, for those who are, you know, mad as hell and don't want to take this anymore, uh, there's a federal election today. Uh, mm. There's been some talk about affordable housing. Uh, there's a provincial election next year. Uh, there's a, a municipal election on the horizon, uh, a little bit down the road. But I mean, there, there's an opportunity. I mean, if you don't like what's going on, you don't like the way in which things are being dealt with. Uh, let's let's talk about other options. And uh, so that's that's got to be part of the conversation. Look, I got a couple of minutes left. I just want to pivot very quickly, uh, because one of the, the, the things that you guys do at Power Group, of course, is is you talk about strategy, political strategy, business strategies, things of this nature. Uh, there was an interesting piece by Chantal Hiver in in the, uh, the Toronto Star over the weekend uh, saying, Aaron O'Toole or Justin Trudeau, uh, Monday's loser will not survive as party leader. That's one of the subtexts of this whole election. Uh, if the Conservatives don't top of the liberals and if aaron Tool doesn't form government there's a lot of rumblings right now that the, the knives are going to be out for him uh and a lot of questions mr trudeau himself was asked over the weekend uh you know if it's another minority government is this your last election and, and typically uh, that's politicians no politicians going to answer that question directly but there's a lot riding on this and for these people that want to stay in power within their own party uh these votes count a lot tonight as to what the future of those individuals is going to be like
2: Yeah, I would never argue with the guru of Canadian politics, Chantal Hébert, but I will say I think it's more likely that O'Toole will experience the long knives um, because that's just sort of, uh, in my experience anyway, the conservative way. You know, they're pretty tough on their leaders and they're pretty quick to make their choices. And with Trudeau, I mean, the Trudeau brand, as you know, is not just all his doing, it's his father's as well. And I I would imagine it would have to be a heck of a candidate who would take on Trudeau for the leadership, even if they come in with another minority the, the fact that he decided to do this election you and i talked about a long time ago as soon as covid we got to a certain vaccination rate we expected that he would try to run on his covid record uh, but then the, the fourth wave came we've seen real devastation and people became very angry how can he do an election during fires in bc and the drought in the prairies and everything else going on i will say though and strategically in the last 48 hours uh, O'Toole's campaign made a real mistake and gave Trudeau a real advantage. And and we know these are the seventy-two hours that matter the most. When the, when it came out that O'Toole would not um, ensure that all of the candidates were fully vaccinated, that the candidates weren't reporting if they were vaccinated, they're going to the doors, right? And I think that Canadians, the majority of whom are doing the vaccination, are looking at that going. Well, we need some answers. And then when O'Toole decided not to take questions uh, in the last 24 hours, it gave advantage to Trudeau to say, he's not even, how can he get us out of this if he can't even take questions about it? So I think that was a strategic error by O'Toole. They kind of put their head down and trying to plow through to today. But, you know, Trudeau took advantage of that. So it might be just enough to tip uh, Trudeau into a minority, not enough, I don't think, to necessarily win the popular vote. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's going to be, a, there will be a lot of questions on why Trudeau held the election now, why he didn't do a better job of leveraging his pandemic record. Uh, and O'Toole, if he can't get at least as well as Sheer did in the last election in the popular vote, I suspect he'll challenge his leadership.
0: It's, it's interesting because, you're right, the last couple of days matter a lot because that's when people are really starting to formulate their opinions. And, and O'Toole's tripped himself up a couple of different times. There's the uh, the now-famous quote, I think it was last Thursday. He's, I guess, trying to reach out and rebrand them as progressive conservatives again and trying to get that progressive vote out uh, and saying, look, at this is not your father's conservative party anymore. And that very night he brought Byron Mulroney out, who was the <laughs> leader of your father's conservative party, uh, is the guy who was supposed to endorse him. And I know in Quebec, Mr. Mulroney is still a very, very important figure here and very well respected uh west of there not so much and especially out in alberta and saskatchewan where they're saying why won't you touch t- stephen harper with a 10 football but you're embracing brian Mulrooney? there's a lot of disenchanted conservatives out there
2: well there are and look at what, what Mulrooney said he said that o'toole was going to make you know extreme cuts uh, that would be unpopular, but that wasn't in O'Toole's platform, so he you know, said the quiet part out loud. <laughs> uh, so for all the reasons you mentioned, I don't think Mulrooney Rooney helped him. I don't think the whole um, vaccination approach has helped him. His his fear of addressing it in the, in the crucial last weekend didn't help him. And let's face it, when you've got Alberta in a state of public emergency and the conservative premier, who was close to Harper, right? He is conservative brand, Jason Kenney, having to come out and say, yeah, screwed up royally. You know, holy crap, we're in trouble in Alberta. The rest of Canada is like, do we really want to trust the national response to this pandemic to someone who? did a video endorsing the pandemic response of jason kenney so i think o'toole um in the last 70 at the beginning of the campaign he seemed fresh interesting did better than i expected the last 72 hours have been pretty rough on the conservatives from a bunch of different angles
0: uh, i mean we, we've excluded jagmeet singh from this conversation because i think he gets a pass i mean this is really his first full-fledged election i know he was the leader for the last one but i mean he just recently had won a seat in the legislature in the in, in the parliament etc uh, and and i guess he's just trying to find his political sea legs here and uh, i mean they're not going to form government but uh i th- it's it's the conservative and liberal leaders right now that i think are, are wondering about their futures and and this is i know we're almost out of time I mean, this is not new speculation you know the the rumors about the you know the long-term futures of both mr trudeau and mr o'toole have been out there for quite some time but uh, your point's well taken i think what happens uh in the uh, the ballot box tonight is going to be a major factor in determining just how long these guys are going to stay uh front and center here on the national stage
2: Absolutely, and their concession speech, how they position themselves to their party loyal, will matter. Um, the the, the post election analysis of what happened in which ridings and why, you know that that's going to come out. They're going to have to look at where mistakes made, um, were some comments unfortunate, where some strategic decisions not in line. Uh, but I, I, I do maintain that the Trudeau brand and the Liberal brand are quite a bit more integrated than O'Toole is with the Conservatives, to your point. Is he a Mulroney Conservative? Is he a Harper Conservative? Where is he? Uh, and then we've got the PPC, which we haven't talked about, which might take a bite out of some of those Conservative votes for O'Toole. So I think that he's facing a harsher future coming out of tonight than Trudeau may. Um, But it will certainly come out in the post-analysis. And everyone should watch the speeches. I know they're really late at night. But how they respond to their victory or their loss makes a huge difference in their future.
0: Absolutely. Well, lots to talk about uh, even after the votes are counted. Laura, as always, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. (laughs) You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some updates about what's going on with vaccines and uh, efficacy rates. There's a couple of different things over the weekend. One is good news. One is, uh, well, in some people's minds concerning. There's been a lot of talk about whether or not to use a third vaccine, a third booster shot, uh, in some of the uh, the people that have already been vaccinated and, and received what we used to call fully vaccinated. Maybe fully vaccinated is going to mean three now we're going to talk about that in just a couple of seconds but uh more to the point uh interesting uh and and i think very very welcome news uh, from uh, one of the drug makers that says COVID 19 vaccine now works on children and it's about to go after u.s authorization uh, for that age group brian clark has some details for us pfizer says it's vaccine trials involving more than 2200 children aged 5 to 11 11- found that the vaccine is safe, well-tolerated, and effective. The company says the efficacy and side effects are comparable to people aged 16 to 25 who get the shots. Pfizer and its German partner BioNTech say the optimal dose for children will be one-third of the standard dose and that it hopes to present these numbers to regulators soon. The company says numbers about vaccines for children as young as six months could be out later this year. Ryan Clark, ABC News. So great news about that, but there's some also uh, some other news about Moderna and Pfizer that we're going to get into in a couple of seconds and uh, cover both these stories. Uh, so pleased to welcome Dr. Don Bodish to the program. Uh, Dr. Uh, Bodish is a, a tenure professor of pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster University and also Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity uh, with the DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today.
3: Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Uh,
0: well, first and foremost, let's, let's talk about, well, I guess what's going to be effectually known as is the children's vaccine. Uh, there was a lot of concern about when this was going to be developed. Uh, uh, you know, we, we were hoping it was going to be toward the end of the year. It sort of sounds, Doctor, as if we're a little further down the road than maybe we had anticipated. Are we Are we optimistic.
3: So optimistic. So generally what happens with these big press releases is at the same time they provide all the data to all the public health agencies in the world. So Health Canada will have it, the EU, the FDA, et cetera, et cetera. And then they'll independently analyze the data. So they'll look at it and they'll make sure that they agree with all the conclusions that have been made in the press release. And if they agree that it's safe and tolerable, we have sort of an expedited process for actually getting these into uh, into practice. And just like we saw with our own vaccine rollout, it was waiting, 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 and then it was very quick to implement. So lots of optimism that our 5 to 11-year-olds will probably be vaccinated by the end of the year, which will be great news for all the families who want to celebrate Christmas or whatever winter holiday they celebrate together
0: now the the story that we're hearing is that uh that basically it's a third of the of the, the d- d- dosage size that uh, that well people that are older than that would be getting uh, which sounds awfully simplistic but i got to assume there's a little more went into the research than the simply let's uh, let's try half dose let's try third dose uh, <laughs> it's, know, it's, it's, go ahead
3: it's interesting cuz vaccines aren't quite like drugs so drugs we think is about changing them uh, to you know, your size, and even sometimes, you know, women have different dosing, and and, and we age, and things like that. Vaccines are a little bit different because the amount that you put into a vaccine is just vanishingly small, and it's the immune system that's doing all the heavy lifting. So, with kids, if you remember ever having your kids vaccinated, they've got these really wonderful immune systems that are sort of a little bit um, more responsive than us, and plus they're a little bit more of a blank slate. They haven't had their immune system constantly remodeled by a lifetime of of exposures, so they tend to get fevers really uh, quickly, and they tend to, to to respond, which is actually a good thing from an immunology perspective. So, one of the things they will have been looking for is tolerability. So, making sure that the kids don't feel excessively feverish or you know have sore arms uh, any more than than sort of we expect from adults, but. There's a little bit of science behind that, but it's not quite as complicated as dosing for most drugs, which the drug is doing the work for vaccines. It's your
0: immune system that's doing the work. There's a lot of concern, and I I think justifiable concern over the last little while about vaccination rates. We're not where we wanted to be uh, by this stage after an initial flurry where everybody seemed to be flocking over there and said, you you know, roam up your sleeve the fact that this is going to be available to children right now, uh, what does that do to to those numbers and to the, the efficacy of that uh, vis-a-vis the, the total population? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, not that the little ones are going to be vaccinated. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough, and I'm sure some of our listeners are, uh, to remember when I was just a small kid actually lining up in the hall of school and everybody, we got our polio shots and our booster shots and everything else. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's why you know, these these things were not necessarily eradicated, but they certainly uh, were shoved away. And we said, okay, fine, we've we've got coverage right now. Are, are you are you confident that the same thing can happen here?
3: I'm a little bit worried to be, if I'm perfectly honest, because the communication around the safety for these vaccines has been really complicated. We know for teenagers, there's a very, especially teenage boys, there's a very very small risk of having some heart inflammation, and that's heart inflammation that that doesn't easy to treat, doesn't last forever, goes away. And the messaging that I'm afraid people have sort of lost is how serious COVID, which is now caused by a Delta variant of the virus, not the original variant of the virus, how serious that is for kids. So right now, in the US, it's the number one reason for hospitalization and deaths in kids. In the UK, they're also seeing quite a few hospitalizations, maybe not as many deaths per kids. So the original, you know, we all want to hold on to what we thought about a year or 18 months ago is that it wasn't so bad for kids. The kids were mostly asymptomatic. The kids didn't really spread. The kids were going to be okay. And of course, anyone who loves a child wants that desperately to be true. But with the Delta variant, we do know that there can be serious side effects of having COVID and there can be lots of complications. The vaccines are infinitely safer than getting COVID. And so anyone who really wants to do the right thing and protect their kids, they really should consider vaccination as, as an approach to that. But my concern is that there's been so much negative press about these vaccines and kids. And plus, people are holding on to the slightly outdated belief that their kids are going to be OK if they do get COVID, that we won't get the rates we need. On the other hand, Canadians have been doing a good job, uh, and I think some of the things that motivates parents to get their kids vaccinated is travel, frankly. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to go on those Caribbean vacations we still all love so much, and in many countries, they will not allow uh, an unvaccinated child to go there. So I think that might end up being an incentive. Playing team sports might be an incentive. Uh, sending these kids to summer camps might be an incentive, and those might be the things that get parents doing uh, getting their kids vaccinated.
0: Yeah, and well, we saw that happen over the weekend, didn't we? The story from the states uh, where it was a ten-year-old girl, I believe, that actually died from COVID. Mm-hmm. And, and now they did say that she that she did have pre-existing conditions, uh, and and that was contributory to this. But nonetheless, it, I think it just shows that look, it, we're still dealing with a, a deadly virus here, and and we have to take all precautions. Uh, to my point, though, about about you know the, the young ones getting vaccinated, whether it's going to be in a school environment, I mean that that seemed to be the rule of thumb for mm-hmm. for a period of time. And I, I guess maybe there were anti-vaxxers back then, too, but there was no social media, so uh, the, the message was not as strong and the misinformation was maybe not as strong as it was. Uh, how, how do you roll this out? Is it, is it simply going to be uh, talking to the parents about this and say, okay, this is going to be available hopefully in the next couple of months, uh, get them vaccinated, or is it going to be a, a, a little more strategic to make sure that we reach out to, to school children especially?
3: Yeah, it's, it'll be interesting because the people who are easy to vaccinate are the ones who step up first. You know, people yeah. who are good at the Internet, good at book, booking things, feeling really positive about it. Um, those folks are the, the easiest ones to get done. And then it gets harder and harder and harder. And it also becomes complicated with kids because there's all sorts of factors. Think about all the families who have divorced parents. Do both parents need to consent? Does only one parent need to consent? Uh, if one parent doesn't want it and the other one does, how does that work? you know, where do we give these, Um, you know, historically, we've often given even our flu shots to kids under five, we've always said you have to go to the doctor, other places you can go to a pharmacist or you can go to another clinic with the public concern about that will that be acceptable to families or will they really want this to be done uh within under a doctor's care you know we're all more cautious when it comes to our children for very good reasons and so understanding if people feel that the provincial booking system that many of us have used and going to a combination of pharmacies and vaccine centers is okay for kids if we're really going to want them to be with the doctor we'll have to adapt to what the public wants and, and to be receptive to the fact that we care a lot about our kids. And many of us made the decision very easily to get ourselves vaccinated. But when it comes to our kids, we worry about that more. So I think making sure that we have People tend to trust pharmacists when it comes to vaccination information, so they're they're going to be a great advocate, and they tend to uh, trust uh, nurses and public health professionals, so making sure that they've got really good graphics and visuals and explain the relative risks in such a way, I think that's going to be really key.
0: Okay, Doctor, let's dovetail into efficacy now, because there was another story over the weekend that talked about uh, something that's been on a lot of our minds, and, and that's, okay, I'm, I'm double-vaxxed, uh, how long is this going to last? How long am I going to be at maximum protection? And uh, uh, they've compared the two major ones, I guess, that most of us here in Canada have been using, and that's of course, is, is Moderna and, and Pfizer. Uh, and there's an interesting story here about uh, the effectiveness uh, for the Pfizer vaccine, uh, that it does decrease significantly over a period of time. Moderna, not so much.
3: Mm -hmm. So this is going to be a little bit complicated to explain, but let's break it down. So Moderna uses three times the amount of uh, mRNA as the Pfizer does. So effectively, it's like a high dose vaccine. And we actually have, for older adults, people in long-term care, people with complex medical conditions, we have a high-dose influenza vaccine. So we have the version that we give young, healthy people, and then we put in three times as much of the the vaccine ingredients, and we give it to older people whose immune system just needs a bit more of a kick. Well, as it turns out, (laughs) the Moderna vaccine, we didn't know it at the time, is very much working as like the high-dose influenza vaccine. In my own study of long-term care residents, we found that, sure enough, the people who got the the Moderna vaccine had a lot more antibodies that that are lasting a bit longer and seem to be higher quality. And it's just like that high-dose influenza vaccine. For young people, it's probably a little bit surplus to requirements, and it's probably one of the reasons we have more of those headaches and sore arms and feeling really rubbish after having Moderna. But for older folks and people with complex medical conditions, sometimes more is better. So it's important for us to realize that in Canada, probably as a combination of the fact that we spread out our vaccine doses a little bit more for most people, which actually ended up being a very good thing, and because we've used such a combination of Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca, we're not seeing yet waning immunity in young, healthy people. What Where we are seeing it is exclusively in long-term care residents and in people who have serious immunosuppressive medications for serious conditions so in canada we really don't need to worry about booster shots yet except for those long-term care folks and people who are are immunosuppressed and again it's probably because we spread out the doses which we now know is better uh, and we used a whole combination including moderna which as it turns out is inducing uh stronger immune responses in older adults that last longer so
0: so go ahead Mm -hmm. I'm Just going to ask you. So the Moderna is basically its own booster then, because it has three times the uh, well, like they say in the TV commercials, the active ingredient uh,
2: yeah. to,
0: to to make this last a little longer. And we we should mention by the way, uh, you know, I I've I got my double dose of Pfizer, uh, and so I was 91 percent in the first four months. Uh, now it, they say it could drop down to 77, which is not bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, as I mentioned, the Moderna stays at, at about 92 percent uh, for around that same period of time. So uh, are we moving towards Doctor? Uh, a a, a vaccine of choice you know there are so many choices and we haven't even mentioned some of the other ones that are used in other parts of the world these days Uh, the russian vaccine chinese vaccines and things of this nature but it looks like uh the, the the moderna vaccine seems to be the most effective is that something that we we take going forward and maybe we lean on that more than than the others
3: I think we might end up tailoring our usage. So Moderna is a smaller company than Pfizer. The, you know, if everyone yeah. in Canada said, OK, from now on, we're only using this one. I think we'd be stringed to get that kind of supply. But I definitely think like when we my my lab and my collaborators who worked with the long term care study, when we presented to policymakers, we said we we think you should boost everyone with Moderna. We think that would be a good choice. And some public health agencies said, you know what, I I feel more comfortable, you know, giving people what they'd already had. Mm -hmm. Others said, okay, we're going to go with Moderna booster. Uh, Other people uh, said we're just going to give whatever's easily available. But I think what we're going to end up doing is tailoring which vaccine we give to which population. I think we'll probably start saying, all right, long term care, people who are immunosuppressed. Let's give them Moderna because that works better. Kids, you know, where we might worry a little bit more about that heart inflammation, which Moderna might have slightly more of because it uses more of the active ingredient, as you said, let's stick with Pfizer for them. And their healthy immune system will will fill in the blanks for us. We'll do the rest. So I think what we're going to get to is a point where we're just making really good decisions based on what's available. And to be frank, I'm holding it. I'm sure I'm going to need a booster dose at some point positive almost all our adult vaccines hepatitis hpv anything you've ever been vaccinated for come in threes right because three seems to be the magic number from immunology but I think for me right now, what I would much rather do, because there's no evidence for waning immunity in people who are sort of middle-aged and, and healthy, I'd rather wait for a booster that was specific to these new variants than get another booster now and then maybe need one in a year for now. And let's use the vaccines we have, get them distributed to the rest of the world so these variants of concern don't emerge in those under-vaccinated populations. These vaccines are precious resources, and we really have to use them wisely, wisely, and smartly uh, to stop these variants from from arising in other parts of the world. So, we're okay for now, most of us, uh, but we will need a booster. You will, I guarantee you, at some point, uh, we'll all be called to get a third dose. But whether that's a booster to whatever variant circulating or it's one of the vaccines we already have is yet to be determined
0: uh, and with that in mind I guess this is a and we look at some of these numbers in the efficacy here it's it probably serves as a reminder that look at we have to re- we're not bulletproof uh even if you're double dosed uh you know you can still be exposed to this uh and and you could still catch this and and you know it's it's something to be concerned about uh so we still need to do the social distancing the mask wearing i mean that that stuff doesn't get pushed to the, to the side that we we need to still be on guard i would think
2: yeah we're
3: calling it one of our tools now you know the 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 terrible news is that we have these new variants arising. All of us were vaccinated against the original strain of the virus, and unfortunately, we didn't come down fast and hard enough to eliminate that original strain. And so it there were mutations that arose, and so then we had, you know, the alpha variant, and the beta variant, and now we're onto the delta variant. And so we can't have the we don't have the absolute perfect immune response uh, for the delta variant because that's not what the vaccine was designed against. So we do have to be careful. And, you know, we have to we now know that you can, even if you're fully vaccinated, perhaps carry that virus. So if you're a caregiver for someone in long term care or you're a caregiver for someone who's undergoing cancer treatment or immunosuppressed, you probably want to think long and hard about social distancing, about how many people you socialize with. if You want to spend time with unvaccinated people and how you feel about masking, because you're going to want to make sure you're keeping those folks safe. You know, if you're vaccinated, you're not going to die. Almost certainly, unless you're very, very old or very, very immunocompromised you're going to survive but you don't want to accidentally bring it to someone who doesn't have that luxury so we do still need to be careful and i am so pleased when i walk around hamilton and i see everyone wearing their masks and doing the right thing because i think okay this is what we need to get us through this
0: yeah and well we saw that at the football game on friday night uh, the tiger cad game i mean you know you had to wear the mask to get in the stadium i mean you, know, you, yeah. you want to eat your hot dog and everything that's fine too but people are still being cautious and then that, that's a good thing because we're not out of the woods yet are we I am
3: so pleased to see that it just it it actually warms my heart when I see people doing the, those things to keep themselves and their community safe because you know it's not just it's not all about you it's about your community it's about the people you, you who might you know you we want our our friends who are undergoing chemotherapy to be able to go to that Ty Cats game, don't we? And Mm -hmm. they can only do that if we protect them by getting vaccinated, keeping our masks on and being responsible. So it's just part about making our community and giving, you know, these opportunities to socialize to people who aren't fully
0: protected. Exactly. Uh, Great to have you back on the show, Doctor, to, to add some clarity to this. Thanks so much for the time today.
3: Thanks so much for having
0: me. Take care. Dr. Don Bodish, of course, from McMaster University, and Kennedy Research Chair in Aging and Immunity. Good news about vaccines, especially for kids. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free.